What's up, everybody? Welcome to Hella Average. Man, I said that wrong, didn't I? Welcome to Hella Average with me, Jose. Well, it's a good thing I'm here today. Uh, back on Tuesday, maybe even Monday, I was anticipating exhaustion for today. <laughs> you don't act like you're not impressed. Let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lanes, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Well, welcome back, everybody. I am here once again. Woo, man. Um, uh, yes. Um, actually, today I'm recording a little bit, a day later than normal. I was uh, smoking a cigar and having a couple beers yesterday. I had been planning on recording the podcast, but a buddy of mine uh, hit me up and, you know, there's there's uh, not very, very often that I'm going to turn an invitation like that down. As I may have mentioned in the past, I'm definitely always about hustling and working, but, you know, I have lost a couple really close people in my life the last, I, I don't know, it's been 10 years, you know, and those are the times when I realized where you can't take your special, your friends, especially your circle, for granted. Therefore, if you're not hanging out every day, I think that Sometimes in the middle of the week, they hit you up even if you have plans, you go with it because um, as we all know, uh, life can be extremely short and it's something that we uh, take for granted, I think. So you just never know what's going to happen, right? And not that, that, not that, you know, like as far as we know, our buddy, myself, all of us, you know, seem pretty healthy, but like I said, you just never know. And I've just, I've learned that um, in the past. So not to start off in a sad note or anything like that by any means, but I was just saying, to me anyways, it's not, I'm not right or wrong. I mean, usually I am right, but you know, no right or wrong. I think, uh, I think it's important to sometimes set the hustle to the, to the side a little bit and spend some time with you know, with your people, that, the people that you love and the people that love you, most importantly. So, um, my, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, so it's just one of those things. But anyways, uh, again, welcome to the, welcome to the podcast. Great to, uh, great to have you guys here. And I, um, I'm wearing my, my big nose, uh, George shoes today, because uh, I figured, I mean, why not? Actually, they're just my Nikes. But if you guys listen, if you guys uh, listen to the the previous episode, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I know I'm a little stuffed up for some reason. I don't know. I might, I might be coming down with something. It feels like I'm, I'm fighting something off, but I'm not sure. I'm just trying to do the whole mind over matter thing, right? Uh, I did take some some buccal and some airborne just in case, but I've been kind of feeling off almost all day. Even I went to the gym and just 
it was a little bit of a struggle, um, battling a little bit today. I just was kind of uh, not as strong. Usually after the first you know exercise and sometimes at the first set, I just kind of snap out of it. But the whole day, I, I mean, the whole workout, I, I, I kind of dragged on. That being said, I didn't, I didn't take it any easier than I usually do. I did a full, a full routine. A couple of times, I even pushed a couple of sets. I even pushed harder than normal, just because sometimes, yeah, sometimes you feel a little off. Sometimes you just got to conquer that inner bitch, right? And uh, the difference is knowing whether you actually do f- maybe not feel good, maybe feel like shit. Or you just got to, you know, not be a bitch about it also at the same time. Probably feeling a little off. I can kind of tell with my system the way it's going. Jesus. Sorry, there's um, some next door girl that I don't know if she's a OnlyFans or what. But holy shit, she is unbelievably hot. And she's wearing like this hot pink tight top and little shorts and you know what makes her even hotter that really just basically completes it is she's got a happy meal box with her perfect yeah i know she's got a kid but still um but anyway sorry i'm a little distracted right now but um yeah uh oh um where was i uh, seriously, I don't, I completely forgot where I was at. Uh, that's right. Feeling a little under the weather. So yeah, so I, I think, I think, I, I don't think it was me just being a, a lazy asshole or anything like that. I, I just, I, I definitely feel a little bit different. Um, I work out quite often. I eat pretty clean. I'm, you know, healthy, so forth. So I'm, I'm pretty in tune with my body, so I know when something's a little slightly off, and today is one of those days. Let me get a tissue. I'll be right back. Yes. Uh, all right, so a little bit better. Uh, anyways, um, it is Thursday, so the podcast drops tomorrow, which will be today while you're listening to this, if you're listening to it on Friday. But I figured... Um, whether or not, not that I feel like 100%, I don't think. I Hopefully, I'm. you guys don't notice while I'm doing the podcast as far as maybe I'm, I'm not, you know, off or anything like that. But as they say, you know, uh, the show must go on. So if I'm still feeling pretty decent, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll through it. I'm going to power through it and, uh, and push this through. Because, you know, I don't know, some of you... None of you, all of you, who knows, might know. You know, one of my actual biggest dreams would be to be a uh, stand-up comedian. And, you know, or like my buddy um, Holmberg, who's on the uh, on the morning show here. Well, he is the morning show here of the rock station here in Phoenix. And um, there's just times that no matter what's going on, you know, whatever's happening, whatever's going on, you have you you know you have to 
power through. So, you, you know, there's no such thing as calling in sometimes. Uh, there's sometimes that when you're bedridden, whatever, that's about the only time or you're floored, whatever might happen, emergencies, things like that, of course. But for the most part, you want to power through, right? Um, I could call in if I was working at an office, I'd call in. But, you know, and not 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 that I'm making a living off the podcast by any means. I, I wish I was. Fuck, I mean, I'd be having video. This shouldn't be set up. I'd be actually having guests and you guys would actually not have to worry about just listening to my idiotic ass the entire time. I mean, sometimes I get tired of myself, you know? So what I'm saying is, like, if if I was a stand-up comedian and those stand-up comedians, like, they have to go on whether they've had a shitty day, whether they've had shitty news, whatever it may be, the show must go on because there's people that pay and there's some people that are there, are there to see you for the first time and you have to show up, right? Um, and not that, uh, again, not that I'm making a living of, of my podcast, but I have committed, again, to trying to do once a week. And also, it's, it's, it's doing, creating those habits and creating that ethic, developing that ethic and keeping it. So what if eventually something like that would happen? What about if the podcast would blow up? What about, or what about if I end up, I don't know, not, uh, I would love to say stand-up comedian. I have, I can't because I haven't been doing, um, you know, any open mics, but I'm saying you never know if YouTube blows up and all of a sudden maybe I'm doing show. Who knows? I'm just saying just theoretically, if that happens then I'll be prepared and, why not? I mean, I committed myself to something and I and I enjoy doing it. So um, I am powering through like a motherfucker and conquering my inner bitch. That is unless if I completely feel like shit uh, after a little while, then that's another story. <laughs> but till then, I just hit up some caffeine that I'm doing right now and let's go through this. Um well, I hope you guys, again, have, have maybe liked the new format a little bit more. I'm going to try to actually just maybe keep it to one thing today, and that's my topic. My topic is what I think is, is basically one of the most famous unsolved crimes in American history. So this guy... I only heard about n not too long ago. Now, there's people that that have that have heard about it, and you guys have may maybe have heard about it. Some of you maybe have, or maybe all of you have, and maybe I'm the fucking last one, you know. But nonetheless, I still found it. I mean, she's got to keep quit, quit walking through here. She's distracting me. Um, but you know, some of you may have. I there's there's definitely like conventions on this there it's it's a it's pop culture now which is so crazy and and i'm surprised that i never heard about this and the craziest thing that the the time i heard about it or when i heard about it was i i believe it was last week and i was watching news radio which hopefully you guys know what news radio is to me it's a it's a very extremely underrated sitcom that when I first saw it, and this was uh, mid-90s, I believe, I completely fucking fell in love with it. It was one of the funniest shows I've ever seen. 
well, well ahead of its time. Fantastic. And is it, yeah, David Foley, um, Phil Hartman, uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, I, I don't know. That might be his first acting gig. Uh, and he actually, that's the time that I know he liked it because he talks about it. Not that he and I are tight or friends, but maybe someday I hope to be. <laughs> maybe I'll be on his podcast someday. Let's fucking let's hope, right? So, um, but it is such a great show. And, and right now it's on Amazon. It's always been one of my favorite shows. Kind of like a threes company that I've always thought was com- um, completely, well, most people my age, it's not underrated to them. But I think as far as the industry goes, I think it's very underrated and is well ahead of its time. It's like the Cheers and stuff like that. Just amazing. So I was watching an episode of news radio and this topic came up, this name came up. And I decided to just do a quick look on my phone and thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. And there was quite a bit of history on him, on this crime and everything that's happened. And I thought, fuck, I might as well do a podcast on this because I'll tell you what, the, the format here is, I like the new format. Like I said, I love it. Hopefully you guys do too. I really do enjoy it. Um, the, 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 there's a tough thing with it for me though, because I was planning on doing two to three hours a week on my podcast and that's it, right? So that, in, that involved recording for, you know, an hour because I'm trying to keep it to there. I know sometimes I go over, but doing that and then, you know, typing up everything for the website for not necessarily social media because I used to do that, but it, it just... I don't know if it if it matters, and maybe I should start doing it again, especially with these interesting topics. But that and 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 the whole setup as far as uploading it and creating the you know the the summary and things like that. Well, with the new format, I have to do research. For one thing, is I have to try to think of something every week uh, of of an interesting topic and something that I just find interesting, right? And hopefully you guys do too. But I, I I have to think of something first. Now that doesn't sound like shit really, but it really is because it's almost like it's almost every day you have to try to think of something because you're not gonna think about like basically you'll think of something and and maybe it's not good or whatever. So all week you kind of think like, oh, what'd be my ne- what's gonna be my next podcast? What's gonna be my next episode, I'm saying, you know? And sometimes it's just not easy. And then sometimes I just don't have a lot of fucking time, right? I mean, I have the podcast. I have animation. I, I have actually a couple of animations I'm still working on that I've told you guys that I'm working on that I want to complete. I, I have a lot of work going through right now. And and, I'm, and this is not nothing complaining. I'm very happy, very happy with what's happening. So don't get me wrong on that. I'm just saying this is why I was, you know, going like, okay, I can have so much time for the podcast. However... I am enjoying it, and I think it's great. So I'm, I don't mind pushing a little bit more. So it doesn't sound like much, but I've, I basically doubled. I'm, I'm probably around three hours to six to seven hours a week. And when sometimes you only have three and a half hours, three and a half hours, of, uh, you know, for uh, for five days of the week, you know that that can take two two of those days, right? But um, that's the only thing is, is yeah, it takes a little time. The more stressful part, I think for me is trying to think of what is a good topic and what's interesting, you know, 
and uh and, and and yeah and it takes a little time but again it's fine i don't mind it i think it's great and i'm having fun with it so um yeah and and i was happy to hear sorry i already go on a tangent again but i was happy that i came across this and i thought yes here is my next podcast so um basically is who was or who is db cooper all right so again some of you guys might know this i had no idea and maybe i'm the fucking only one that that doesn't i don't know it's crazy but i found it fascinating so db cooper d as in dog b as in boy cooper yes who was or is db cooper well db cooper is a pseudoname given to this unidentified man who did i tell you before that english is actually my second language because obviously like i mean it's obvious now right um spanish is my first but um i can't speak either one of them that great given to an unidentified man who hijacked a northwest orient airlines flight from portland oregon to seattle washington back on november 24th 1971 yep that is a long time. Now, again, 2000, you're thinking, oh, fuck, 29 years. That's another 20, you know, it's, it's 2023. It's fucking nuts. So this is a long, long time ago now, right? Uh, Cooper was described as a, this time, as a middle-aged man, which who more than likely probably not living anymore, might be deceased, I don't know, uh, with a calm demeanor, Okay. He handed a note to one of the flight attendants and claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in ransom money. All right. After the plane landed in Seattle, Cooper released the passengers in exchange for the money in four parachutes. Um, He then ordered the pilots to fly towards Mexico City But somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, Cooper jumped out of the plane with ransom money and a parachute. So uh, despite uh, an extensive manhunt and numerous of investigations, no trace of D.B. Cooper or the money has ever been found. Um, Pretty crazy, huh? The FBI conducted one of the largest investigations in its history, and uh, and the case remains officially unsolved to this day. I mean, that is fucking crazy. So over the years, uh, there has been, of course, numerous theories, right? Suspects, the, the works. And we're gonna go. We're gonna get into this a little bit more. I should just read that and call it good and be like, all right, episode's over, and go eat and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that late. Um, but no, no, I'm not going to do that to you guys. We're going to go a little bit more detail. But yeah, uh, theories and suspects. Uh, there was one including a man named uh, by the name of Kenneth Christensen who worked for Northwest Airlines and had military parachuting experience. Um, however, none of the theories or any of the suspects of all those times have been definitively proven. 
And uh, the case of D.P. Cooper still remains one of the most famous and intriguing unsolved mysteries in American history. Crazy, isn't it? Now, I do have a disclaimer. I did have ChatGPT help me a little bit with this. Um, it's amazing how you could just say, hey, give me some bullet points, this and that. It, it needs a little more work because it still does it really short. And maybe that's a good thing because if not, I'll fucking go on forever. As you guys know, I just talk and talk and talk. But um, it, sometimes I think it's a little too short. And again, maybe it's a good idea because you know it puts it, it puts it out in sections which is kind of cool but it's very very helpful i gotta say so yeah chat gpt is my jamie right rogan has jamie jose has chat gpt and there we go so yes chat gpt actually helped me a little bit um all right so the hijacking all right uh db cooper uh as they call it a media epithet and uh, like I said, an unidentified man who hijacked this back in November of 24, 1971 on Thanksgiving Eve, which is probably a great time to do something like that because it's very quiet during those holidays, you know. And it was a man that was using the name Dan Cooper, later identified as D.B. Cooper. And um, he boarded it, uh, boarded the, the Northwest Orient Airlines flight from from Oregon or from Portland um, going to Seattle with a crew of six and 37 passengers. Um, he was uh, um, he was dressed, you know, in a business suit, ordered a bourbon and soda <laughs> and smoked a shit ton of cigarettes uh, during the flight. And um, and this was back in the day, which before my time, I guess you were able to actually buy an airline ticket with cash at the counter. And if I remember, he actually paid 20 fucking bucks. I, of course, this is back again, 1971, which is just nuts, right? But 20 bucks, you imagine that shit? Nowadays, you can't get five gallons of gas for fucking 20 bucks. D.B. Cooper, um, so shortly before the plane was scheduled to land in Seattle... Uh, he actually handed a note to one of the flight attendants, this uh, lady by the name of Florence Schaffner. Schaffner, Schaffner. Almost sound like Shatner, right? And, uh, you know, and she was just assumed that this note was from a lonely businessman, you know, giving her his number and so forth. So she just went ahead and just dropped a note. It didn't read it or anything like that. Just grabbed it and just dropped it in her purse. Well, Cooper kind of saw that and he leaned, he like leaned towards back, like because she's sitting behind him, leaned back and he like whispered to her, Miss, this is, and this is what the note, well, this is what he said, you know, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. So, of course, at that point, she, she decides to open it, you know, get in her purse, open it, and then neat all capital, cap, capital, capital, in neat, all capital letters, printed with a felt-tip pen, the note read, Miss, I have a bomb here, and I would like you to sit by me. Well, you know, I would say uh, that would probably make, make you get a little bit of concern and, and go into action, right? So uh, Schaffner, Florence, will say, uh, she, uh, so of course, at that point, she sat down next to him. 
Um, he opens his briefcase, and um, when he opened his briefcase, he revealed what was appeared to be a bundle of wires and red sticks. Okay, when she actually kind of asked to see it, it was actually look 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 like four sticks of dynamite with um, uh, like a a battery pack of some sort. So then he demanded that Florence um, read a note that he had written uh, and hand it. Oh, sorry. Cooper demanded that Schaffner read a, read a note that he ha he had written and handed to her, which contained his demands. Okay, so um, obviously she had already read it, I believe. But his demands were $200,000 in unmarked $20 bills. Now, the crazy thing about that is in today's money with the inflation and so forth, it is that is worth around $1.4 So that's what it equated to back in the day. So that's, that's, a, that's a lot of money. Um, he also requested four parachutes. Two of them need to be main chutes and two need to be reserve chutes. And then um, a final third thing was a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane upon arrival. Arrival, revival. So I'm told you, I'm all fucked up. But I'm, I'm trying to get my shit together, boys and girls. Hang in with me. Hang in with me. Oh, I'm on it. I know. I'm not on my game like I usually am. Damn it. But I'm powering through, baby. I'm powering through. All right. So, um, so of course, she reads this, of course. And then Cooper warns Florence that, you know, if his demands aren't met, he would do the job, which, of course, means he's going to blow that bitch up. I'm not, not, not Florence. I'm saying the whole, well, her too. But I'm talking about the entire plane, uh, which, of course, as... It says she interpreted it as meaning he would blow up the plane. Well, of course. I mean, what else would that mean? Do the job like I'm going to go clean the fucking, you know, toilet or, you know, I'm going to take over as a flight attendant and start serving drinks. I mean, fuck, come on. So Florence then immediately informed the captain and the rest of the crew of the hijacking. At that point, she was ordered to actually stay in the cockpit. So with her in the cockpit... Another flight attendant by the name of Tina Mucklow then sat next to Cooper to act as, as a liaison between Cooper and the flight crew in the cockpit. At that point, that's when he actually made like some additional demands upon landing in Seattle. The fuel trucks, so here's, and here it is. We're going to go into a little bit more detail here. Upon landing in Seattle, the fuel trucks must meet the plane and all the passengers must remain seated while Mucklow brought the money aboard, all right? After he, after he had the money, um, Cooper said he would release the passengers. The last items brought aboard would be the four parachutes. So she's like, okay, so right now that's all we're looking for, all right? Well, not looking for that. Those are his demands. Um, so she does, uh, and hold on, I'm just, I just don't want to jump too crazy ahead, but I just want to see something here. So, so they land in Seattle, okay? He actually, um, ends up staying, uh, on the plane, and then it goes into quite a bit of detail. I'm not going to go into the crazy, crazy part of detail because, you know, we'll be here for fucking ever, um, yeah, so, you know, of course he wants the, the money and negotiable American currency. So Tina Mucklow is the person that he has, at this point, chosen to um, take care of all 
of these uh, demands. So basically, uh, Captain Scott was informed that the parachutes had been delivered to the airport and uh, they notified Cooper. You know, this is right before they were landing. But anyways, uh, they went ahead and did that. So as soon as that happened, and Mucklow was the one that was going to be uh, taking care of this. So the passengers had to remain seated in a ground crew, um, you know, attached the mobile staircase. So per Cooper's directive, Mucklow exited the aircraft through the front door and retrieved the man's ransom money. And then when she returned, she carried the money past the seated passengers to Cooper, seated in the last row. At that point, that's when Cooper actually then agreed to release the passengers. And as soon as the passengers uh, were debarked, you know, Cooper inspected the, the money in an attempt. It was inspected the money at that time. And um, I have Muckrow. It just sounds like a weird name. I for, <laughs> I'm just like, Muckrow. Um, anyways, it was it Tina? Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking right now. Give me a hold on. Uh, yeah, Tina. So um, I just, I don't know, it sounds weird. I know, it's just her last name, big deal. So when he was, while, while inspecting the money, uh, Tina, in an attempt to break the tension, jokingly asked Cooper, hey, you know, if she could, like, she, if she could have some of the money. <laughs> and Cooper actually readily agreed and handed Tina a packet of bills. Um, she eventually just returned it, though, because it's against company policy at that time to accept any additional money or tips <laughs> so um anyways so obviously the demands were there and they were met and uh the passengers were released and so the last items brought aboard would be the four parachutes so um Sorry, I forgot. I was because I'm switching between two fucking places here. But uh, but yeah, she um, explained accepting gratuities against policy. So then Cooper then ordered the pilots at that point after they refueled the plane, which actually took a little bit longer. Um, uh, he then ordered the, the pilots to fly towards Mexico City. Uh, Cooper then gave the cockpit crew his flight plan, okay, and his directives. Now. This guy is no dummy. Obviously, extremely, or was, whatever it is, extremely intelligent. Um, to the point of, he he obviously knew what he was doing. And he had, who knows how long he had this plan for. But he had this down to a fucking T. Which I would say, probably is why he decided to hijack it on uh, Thanksgiving Eve. Would be my guess. I don't know. If I was a criminal, I guess that's what I would do. Um... So then uh, he gave him the flight plan and the directives. It was basically a southeast course towards Mexico City at a minimum airspeed, possible without stalling the aircraft, which I guess com comes to about approximately 100 knots or 115 miles an hour at a maximum of 10,000 foot um, altitude. Uh, he also specified the landing gear must remain deployed. The wing flaps must be lowered to 15 degrees. Now, this is very, very specific for somebody that's just happening to hijack the fucking plane, right? And maybe, like they said, maybe that's somebody that obviously has some type of aviation experience and has been around it, possibly worked with them. Who knows? Some people even thought it was a government, um, a person that worked for the government, which, hey, especially nowadays, that you can't be overlooked on that. Uh, and then the cabin must remain unpressurized. 
Makes sense. Um, Tina actually said, so Tina said, Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. And we'll go, I think I'll be able to reflect back on this for a minute because I, I kind of found this little comical later and, and we'll, we'll, we'll circle back. But, um, you know, while looking out the window, Cooper remarked, looks like Tacoma down there. As the aircraft flew above it, Cooper also correctly noted McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from SeaTac Airport. Tina later described the hijacker's demeanor. Cooper was not nervous. He actually seemed rather nice and was not cruel or nasty, which usually means that's that's pretty a sophisticated and smart individual. Like there's there's a lot of intelligence uh, behind this, and this is only and this is from what they know and almost 100% believe he acted alone. So th that's that's ballsy, man. That's ballsy. So it, I, I still find it pretty pretty uh, incredible and fascinating. So after takeoff, Cooper told Tina to lower the, um, the staircase. And uh, she was afraid of being sucked out, of course. I mean, I, I would be too. And asked if she can actually be tied by a rope so she would be safe. And as a matter of fact... The cockpit crew, yeah, I know that was a bad pause. That's like a Brady pause. Cock pit crews um, actually had requested that they tie her to, you know, up there, like somebody come over to Tina and tie her up from the cockpit crew, but he denied that, you know, because he didn't want anybody there. And that makes sense, right? I mean, he could be jumped, who knows? I doubt anybody would, but you never know. So he kind of he pretty much um, said no, that's not going to happen. So that's why she was asking if there was any way that she could possibly at least, you know, tie herself to a rope so she'd be safe. Well, instead he just instructed Tina to go to the cockpit to close the curtain, you know, the partition separating the partition separating the coach and the first class sections, and not to return. So as Tina walked to the cockpit and turned to close the curtain partition. She saw Cooper standing there in the aisle, tying what appeared to be the money bag around his waist. And from that moment of takeoff to when Tina entered the cockpit, which is crazy, only... So, okay, let me read that again. From the moment of takeoff to when Tina entered the cockpit, only four to five minutes had elapsed. Okay, that's nuts. So for the rest of the flight to Reno, Tina remained in the cockpit and she was the last person to see the hijacker. So um, he was tying the bag around his waist because he specifically actually asked for a, um, uh, the type of bag was a knapsack. So that's, that's why it, it, she saw him, you know, kind of basically tying this around his waist. So... What had happened is that the money was delivered in a cloth bag instead of a knapsack, as he actually had directed, and now had to improvise a new way to transport the money. So using a pocket knife, Cooper cut the canopy from one of the reserve parachutes and stuffed some of the money into that empty uh, parachute bag, which he basically made into a money bag. So then somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, Cooper jumps out of the plane with the ransom money and a parachute, of course, on. Despite this extensive, extensive manhunt, numerous investigations, 
no trace of Cooper or the money has ever been found or has there. Well, this still making it one of the most famous unsolved crimes in American history. So, however, in 1980, a small portion of the ransom money was actually found along the banks of the Columbia River. It was on February 10th in 1980. Now, Grant, remember, now this is now nine years later, all right? So in 1980, an eight-year-old by the name of Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina, or Tena, Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles south of Ariel. Now, the reason why they're saying Vancouver, Washington, because... They did, a, they did a quite a few test runs uh, in trying to find, like, I mean, they even dropped, like, a dummy, um, it's like a dummy bag or crate, whatever, so forth, um, trying to find, to figure out the flight path of, of, this, of, this, of this plane, and they tried numerous, numerous locations. Now, the reason why I don't want to go too much into detail with that is because we'd be here for three hours, Okay. So it was, it was, um, I, I really couldn't tell you how many, oh, sorry, um, locations they, they searched, but it was quite a few. Um, anyhow, one of them, and I believe is basically one of the last ones, was right around the Vancouver, Washington area. So that's why they're being specific about beachfront known as Tina or Tena, all right? I mean, they even... And I know this just goes off a little bit base, but just to let you know, back in even 1971, this when this happened in December, so you know this is uh, two three weeks later, um, the FBI director uh, approved the use of an Air Force SR-71 Blackbird to basically retrace and photograph, you know, flight this flight's flight well, let's say flight 305's flight path, you know, to see if they can locate items Cooper carried during the jump or anything like that. So the SR-71 Blackbird. Now, I'm, I'm assuming most of you guys know what that is. Um, and it's at that, especially at that time, was probably the most technological aircraft, at least we had, possibly in the world, but definitely for us, okay? So this thing was a fucking beast. It made five flights to retrace Flight 305's route, but due to poor visibility, the photography attempts were completely unsuccessful. All right, so that kind of shows you there was a uh, there was kind of um, different places like uh, extra flotations placed Cooper's landing zone with an area uh, on the southmost you know southmost air reach of like Mount Helens for instance uh, Ariel Washington uh, Lake, Lake near Lake Merwin uh, which is an artificial lake um, also uh, they focused on Clark and Coates counties. Wherever that is, but I'm just letting you know they tried different places. Uh, they had search parties, you know, run patrol boats along the Lake Merwin and Yale Lake. Um, you know, they had aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard um, doing the entire flight path known as Victor 23 for the av aviation technology. Um, they at one point had, you know, FBI agents, this is in 72, but, and, you know, who knows what time 72, but FBI agents aided by 200 soldiers from Fort Lewis. I mean, um, 
insane stuff, right? Uh, National Guardsmen, civilian volunteers conducted thorough ground search of Clark and in, in Cowboys counties for 18 days, all right? And then another and 18 days in March and then another 18 days in April, okay? Uh, an electronics explorations company, which is a marine salvage firm at that time, used a, a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Um, and, uh, and, no, and, and nothing still uh, was not found. Um, ultimately, the extensive search and recovery operation uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. So... You know, that's pretty it's pretty fascinating for everything that they were doing. So based on early computer projections produced for the FBI, Cooper's drop zone was actually first estimated to be, be between Ariel Dam to the north and the town of Battleground, Washington to the south. So back in 72, the FBI actually concluded the, their original calculations were incorrect after a joint investigation with... Um, Flight 305 and the Air Force uh, determined, and the Air Force determined that Cooper probably jumped over the town of La Center, Washington. So then, fast forward really quick to 2019. Don't worry, we'll go back for a little bit more. But I'm just kind of trying to tell you the extensive search that they did for this man and and with the Columbia River and all this. So in 2019, the FBI released a report indicating that about three hours after Cooper jumped. A burglary was reported at a small grocery store uh, near Hayson, Hayson, Washington, an incorporated, you know, uh, community that was located within the calculated drop zone that Norwest Airlines presented to FBI. So the burglar was noted by the FBI to have taken only survival items such as beef, jerky, and gloves. Okay, so um, that's the extensive search. So then we come back to. Um, as as we said, 1980, where this eight-year-old boy, Brian Ingram, was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River, right? And um, and this is, again, Vancouver, Washington, 20 miles south of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash totaling around 5,800 bucks as he raked the Sandy River Bank to build like a campfire, right? Like what you're, as a kid, you're just doing little shit. The bills had actually been disintegrated from lengthy exposure to the elements, but were still bundled in rubber bands, okay? Technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90, all arranged in the, in the same order as when given to Cooper, so, of course, upon that discovery, it launched several new rounds, you know, and ultimately raised more questions than it had actually answered. Um, initial statements by investigators and scientific consultants were found on the assumption that the bills, uh, you know, the bundled bills were actually washed freely onto the or into the Columbia River from one of its many connecting uh, tributaries. Um, one of the engineers from the army, um, a hydrologist, it says, noted that the uh, the bills the bills had disin uh, disintegrated and in a rounded fashion. So basically, and were matted together. Still, of course, remember, indicating that they had been deposited by or, or dis deposited, yeah, by uh, by river action. You know, just like how rocks are round. You know, 
uh, as opposed to haven't been deliberately buried. So the the rubber band thing is interesting because the conclusion of it is 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 basically, if correct, um, supported the opinion that Cooper had not landed near Lake Merwin, or you know, or like the like the Lewis River, which feeds into Columbia, well downstream from Tina Bar. It uh, it it uh, it also lent credence to supplemental speculation. The drop zone was near the, and I'm gonna butcher this, Washougal River, I don't know, which merges merges with the Columbia upstream from the discovery site. So the crazy thing about that is that the that it, it, this will this would present more difficulties, and here's why: because it did not, it did not explain, of course, the the ten bills missing from one packet, nor was there a logical reason for three packets that uh, would have remained together after separating, you know, from the rest of the money. Physical evidence also was incompatible with geological evidence. Um, the thing is, is that the free floating bundles would have washed up on the bank within a couple years of the hijacking because otherwise the rubber bands would have, you know, long since deteriorated, which makes a hundred percent, which makes sense, right? I mean, this is nine years later, the, the rubber band would have, I would say would have been disintegrated. I mean, I swear to God those things never fucking last to begin with. So, uh, so basically that's what the saying is they hadn't been there since 1971. So they're saying that the geological evidence suggested that the bills actually arrived at the Tina bar after 1974. <laughs> pretty, pretty nuts, man. Um, so, so I, you know, that's why I said like, no trace of the Cooper or the money has ever been found. Well, actually, it was back in 1980. So as I said, the discovery of the money renewed public interest in the mystery. And then, uh, unfortunately, well, not to me. I'm fortunately for Cooper because I'm kind of on his side a little bit. You know, uh, you know, he didn't hurt anybody. Just jacked some money and took off like fucking balls on that dude. Uh, he, you know, of course, yielded no additional information about his identity nor his fate, and the remaining of the money uh, was never ever recovered. So the hijacker identified himself as Dan Cooper, but that was because of reporters' mistake, who thought there was this guy that they were kind of looking at by the name of DB Cooper, and one of the guys accidentally one of the reporters got it wrong and that's why he is now known as db cooper so uh, in 1986 after uh, protracted neg negotiations um and now you're talking you know what f 15 years at that point um the recovered bills were divided equally between ingram okay and the northwest orient's insurer royal globe insurance uh, the FBI actually retained 14 examples as evidence. Uh, Ingram, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Remember that that's uh, the kid that found it, which is kind of crazy that they actually split it between him and the or he and the and the and the insurance. Um, Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction back in 2008. For about thirty-seven thousand dollars, 
Uh, the Columbia River ransom money remains the only confirmed evidence from the hijacking found outside the aircraft. So the FBI, I guess, speculates that Cooper did not survive his jump. And I guess for several reasons. One is the inclement weather on the night of the hijacking. Uh, Cooper's lack of proper skydiving equipment. His drop zone was a heavily wooded area and Cooper's apparent lack of detailed knowledge of this landing area, which I found that funny because if you remember what I just said, read just a little bit ago, um, even the flight attendant said he seemed pretty familiar with that. So this is what I'm saying is like, why is the FBI always trying to like maybe say different shit? I don't know what it's doing, but come on, man. And the other part I highlighted was the skydiving part, and I'll get that to just a second. But anyways, the lack of uh, knowledge of his landing uh, of his landing area and the dis- disappearance of the remaining ransom money suggesting it was never spent. Okay, so to me, they're just trying to make a copy. Like, well, he's dead. There's no reason. Uh, he's never spent. Listen, to me, it shows a little different. Now, lack of proper uh, skydiving equipment. Here's, here's where, you know, as you guys remember, I just said Cooper... And just read a little bit. Cooper gave that cockpit crew his flight plan. Remember? Not only did he give him his flight plan, um, he knew, like, I mean, the flight plan alone, um, and this is back in 71, right? So it's not like we have a phone. Uh, told him the speed to go, the altitude to go, what, you know, what must be deployed, and that the flaps must be lowered at 15 degrees. But no. Um, and then ordered the parachutes. But yeah, obviously has no idea. Even though he ordered four, four parachutes, four mains, four reserves, four reason. Ordered, uh, got some military ones which deploy immediately and really have no steering to them whatsoever. So obviously, I think he knew a little bit, right? I mean, he was familiar with quite a bit of things. And I just still find that pretty funny uh, given the fact that he specifically asked for certain things. And and here's the one thing, is they, they're, they're thinking that, okay, so one of the two reserves uh, shoots that Cooper was given was an unusable training shoot intended only to be used for classroom demonstrations. Um, the, reserve, the reserve shoot had a canopy inside of what of that was sewn t- together so that the skydiving students could, you know, feel free pulling a rip cord and, and see how it feels without the canopy actually opening and so forth. Well, the thing is, is they had actually uh, several individuals. They call them copycats. Now, I don't know if they were trying to do it on their own hijacking or if, from what it sounds like, they were having people do it to see if they were able to basically repeat and succeed in not only deploying from the aircraft, but landing safely and surviving the fall, the parachute fall. And every single person succeeded. And and one of them, one of them just had a little bit of a tumble, but not even broken bones or anything. So obviously he didn't, I mean, after all the extensive search, you think that they wouldn't have found something, especially before you know a month two months five months later i mean you would you'd find something so 
I think they're full of shit, and they know they are. That's the only thing is that they're trying to say this. But the funny thing is it's been contradicted. I mean, they didn't know where he actually... They believe that he didn't know where he was, his drop zone, um, and so forth. No, he told them... I mean, even, again, she said, hey, it looks like Tacoma down there. He spotted the air base correctly. So, yeah, he knew what he was doing. Uh, so the, in, in, the investigation, all right, here's the... In, so now we're to the investigation. Investigation. What did I even say? Uh, sorry, it's getting late. <laughs> so the investigation. The investigation, um, I guess I should say, brings us to the investigation. I mean, fuck, I already, I already botched up the delivery. I mean, come on. The investigation into the D.B. Cooper case was one of the most extensive in U.S. history, as we kind of touched on it, right? Involving the FBI, local enforcement agencies, even the U.S. Army, and due to the number of variables and parameters precisely dividing the area to search, it was still extremely difficult. Out of all, I mean, still so many people. In addition to 66 latent fingerprints aboard the airliner, FBI agents recovered Cooper's black clip-on tie and tie clip and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and had two shroud lines cut from the canopy which we just kind of kind of went over that a little bit ago probably why yeah he was making a bag out of it uh as uh, fbi agents interviewed eyewitnesses in portland seattle and reno and developed a series of composite sketches the tie clip left behind cooper on the plane the clip was analyzed you know well okay so let me let me read that again the tie clip left behind cooper on the plane was analyzed for fingerprints and dna but no useful information was ever obtained. The parachute that Cooper used was also examined and experts determined that it was a military-style chute that was not available to the public. Um, one of the primary focuses of the investigation was on the ransom money, which of course, as we said, consisted of 10,000 unmarked $20 bills. Uh, the FBI carefully tracked the serial numbers of the bills and monitored the banks and other financial institutions in an effort to identify any transactions involving the ransom money. But despite these efforts, none of the bills ever surfaced in circulation, which leads them to believe that Cooper may have taken them out of the country or hidden them somewhere, which is quite possible. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies searched large areas of the heavily wooded terrain on foot and by chopper. Door-to-door -door searches of local farmhouses were also carried out. Other search parties ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin, uh, Yell Lake, the reservoir immediately to its east, but neither Cooper nor any of the equipment was ever, ever found. Using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard, the FBI still coordinated an aerial search along the entire flight path, as I mentioned earlier, and still nothing. Although numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was ever found. So the search for the ransom money. A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions into law enforcement agencies around the world now i doubt 
a lot of people around the world are going to give two shits, really, when it comes down to it. Uh, Northwest Orient actually even offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of 25K, which is pretty fucking goddamn good, I got to say, right? Uh, in early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. In Seattle, the post-intelligencer intelligence, intelligencer <laughs> made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward, though. The offer actually remained in effect until Thanksgiving in 1974. And uh, though several near matches were reported, guess what? No genuine bills were found. So in 1975, Northwest's Orient Insurer Global Indemnity Company complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme court and paid the airlines $180,000 claim on the ransom money. Yep. Very fucking fascinating. I mean, I don't know. Hopefully you guys are enjoying it. Uh, um, now we go to, man, I'm almost at an hour. Sorry, guys. I, I apologize. Um, I think we're getting close to being done. Um, so the investigation is suspended at this time. Only, uh, I mean only, on July 8th, 2016, the FBI announced active investigation of the Cooper case was suspended, citing the need to focus investigative resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Well, go figure. I mean, come on. I would hope so. It's 2016. Local field offices would continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related to specifically to the parachutes or to the ransom money that may emerge in the future. The, get this, the 66-volume case file, 66-volume <laughs> case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation will be preserved for historical purposes at FBI headquarters, and it should say, the day we got our asses kicked, right? I think so. I think that's a great fucking plaque. The day the FBI, what if it's in the headquarters, the day we got our asses handed to us. It's going to be in Washington, D.C. on the FBI website. All of the evidence is open to the public. So now, oh, sorry, my nose got stuffed up again, so I had to go blow it real quick, which didn't help a lot. <laughs> so, uh... So now we come to basically the physical evidence, which really comes down to our, not much what I mentioned. You know, the, the black tie, the black clip, tie clip or clip tie, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, actually, they did cigarette butts, okay? And I didn't really go over that because, eh, they didn't find shit. But anyways, I'm talking more after the jump. So they found the tie, the tie clip, um, outside the money that uh, Brian Ingram found, and the parachutes that were um, left on the plane. That's about, and that's about it, you know. So, um, as I mentioned, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit on myself, but that's okay. Um, so, as I mentioned, during the hijacking, Cooper demanded and received the two main shoots and the two reserve shoots, right? 
Uh, actually, one of them was from a local skydiving school. <laughs> That's like I kind of mentioned because they said it was a dumb issue, right? Um, but uh, obviously, that was probably the one that he cut, I'm sure, to make a bag. Uh, obviously, he's not a stupid man, so he probably was able to at least check that out and realize this one's fucked up. So the reserve chute that had been opened, you know, with the three shroud lines that had been cut out, um, and of course the main chute that was left behind that was still intact. Um, the unused main chute uh, described uh, by the FBI agents as a, actually a, an, a Navy backpack six, what it's called, is now on display at the Washington State Historical Society Museum. So, you know, that's the one thing is, Hey, it's 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 on the museum. We we got our asses handed to us that time, right? Um, outside of the the money and everything, um, so not a lot of evidence, not a lot of physical evidence. Just what I had mentioned, which I thought was you know quite quite interesting, and I still still fucking blown away by it. I mean, I just I, I really can't believe it. So the legacy. All right, now we come down to the legacy. Um, outside of uh, let's see. Oh, by the way, before before I go to the legacy, they did find one more thing in in November. When ironically enough, in November in 1978, a deer hunter found a 727's instruction uh, place card for lowering a uh, placard. Sorry, place card. I misread that. Uh, instruction uh, placard placard for lowering the um, the air stairs. And the placard was found near, near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, north of Lake Marin, but within Flight 305's basic flight path. I just, I don't know. I, I, have, I have to root for D.B. Cooper. Sorry if you guys feel like I'm a degenerate, which I kind of am, but I got to say, man, I, I'm... I'm I kind of root for the dad. I kind of rooted for the cat. My, that's just who I am. Um, the D.B. Cooper case has had a lasting impact on American pop culture and law enforcement practices. The case captured the public imagination and has become one of the most famous unsolved mysteries in U.S. history. One of the key legacies of the D.B. Cooper case has been its impact on airline security. Um, in the aftermath of the hijacking, airports and airlines began implementing new security measures, including metal detectors, extra machines, and stricter screening procedures. So we could kind of atone. That's the only thing. Maybe I'm not a fan of D.B. Cooper, but listen, eventually it would have happened. I'm telling you, if it wasn't him, somebody else would have did it, and they would probably would have been caught. Oh, I got a, uh, I got a guest, little man. Oh, he just decided to open up the door, scream at me, and then leave it open to walk off. Thanks, little man. Appreciate it. You can come in, but. Yeah, he just he doesn't like being locked out of things, so he just wants to make sure everything's open. I think he's just being safe. He wants to uh, make sure everything's open in case there's an alarm and I have a a, a quick route of escape. I, I guess that's what I'm that or or if he wants to be fed immediately, at least I can get there as soon as possible. That's probably more what it is. Or he wants a fort on the couch or on the bed or wherever the hell it is. You know, what I mean, he rules the fucking house. He's he's the ruler of the apartment. All right, so. The Federal Aviation Administration also established the Federal Air Marshal Service, which places armed law enforcement officers on select flights to deter hijackings and other threats. Um, the case has also had a significant impact on law enforcement practices. 
The investigation into the D.B. Cooper case was one of the most extensive and well-known in FBI history, and it helped establish new protocols and procedures for conducting large-scale investigations. The case also highlighted the importance of forensic science and criminal investigations, with the FBI analyzing the tie clip left behind Cooper for fingerprints and DNA. Did I mention they didn't find shit? The case has also had a significant culture impact, which I had no idea. Um, the story of D.B. Cooper has been the subject of numerous books, articles, and documentaries. And it has been referenced in popular TV shows, as I just told you, you know, earlier in the podcast, and movies, including The X-Files and Twin Peaks. The case also inspired countless conspiracy theories and speculation about the true identity of Cooper and what became of him. I'm still saying, um, you know, uh, news radio. Uh, 30 Rock was another one. Um, oh, gosh. I, 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 I don't have the list on me here. Oh, yes. There it is. Uh, Prison Break. Um, the Blacklist. Justified, I guess. Which I thought that was a Western, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, Breaking Bad, which I I was trying to recall, but I don't remember. I don't remember. Uh, it's been, but obviously it's been in numerous places, which is weird. Maybe I just heard the name and just didn't know what it was, and I just kind of eh, whatever. So, in summary, the legacy of the DB Cooper case includes its impact on airline security, no doubt, <laughs> law enforcement practices, and of course, pop culture. The case remains a source of fascination and speculation for many people, and its impact on American society continues to be felt to this day. Now, I'm not going to leave you just yet. It's just a quick... So, there were quite a few suspects, okay? Um, and the list is quite long. There was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 actual, like, big suspects. I'm sure there was more than that, but these are the ones that they actually, like, were were the ones that were legitimate suspects, like, legitimate. Now, I'm not going to go through all those, and I'm only going to touch on four and just brief on each one of these four. So, yes. Of course, there have been more than several suspects. There's been a shit ton over them over the over the years. But here, I'll give you some of the most notable, right? So Kenneth Christensen. Uh, Christensen was a former military paratrooper who lived in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the hijacking. He reportedly had knowledge of the area where Cooper jumped from the plane and had a background in skydiving. Well, it can't be him because the FBI just said... Hey, this guy doesn't know his terrain. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Skydiving? That motherfucker is novice at best. He don't know shit. Yeah. Well, then why he a suspect, right? In 2020, the FBI announced that they had identified Christensen as the most likely suspect in the case. But they did not have enough evidence to bring charges against him. And he ended up uh, passing away in 1994. Could be him. Uh, another one was by the name of Robert Rackstraw and Rackstraw was a former military pilot who was investigated by the FBI in the 1970s and again in the 2010s. He had a history of criminal activity and reportedly bragged about being D.B. Cooper and listen, after a while, why not, you know, 
And anybody, to me, anybody who like brags after that, after that long, that length of time, to me, almost automatically out. Um, so, however, no conclusive evidence has been found linking him to the hijacking. Um, another uh, suspect, a notable suspect, one of the, uh, the third notable suspect, Richard McCoy Jr. Uh, McCoy was a former Army. That was a motorcycle, obviously. McCoy was a former Army helicopter pilot who hijacked a plane in 1972 in a similar manner to the D.B. Cooper case. He was arrested and later died in a prison escape attempt. I'm guessing he got shot or something. But some investigators have suggested that he may have also been responsible for the Cooper hijacking. And another fourth uh, most notable is by a guy by the name of Dwayne Weber. And Weber was a career criminal who reportedly made a deathbed confession to his wife, claiming that he was D.B. Cooper. However, there is little concrete evidence to support his claim. Um, I know there was a little bit more on, on this Dwayne guy. Uh, he was a World War II Army veteran who had served time in at least six prisons from 45, 1945 to 1968 for burglary and forgery. Um, he was, um, that's when he said he made the deathbed confession, confession three days before he died in 1995. He supposedly told his wife, I am Dan Cooper. The name meant nothing to her. And says, so months later, a friend told her of its significance in the hijacking. She went to her local library to research Cooper found this guy by the name of Max Gunther, his book, and discovered the notations in the margins in her husband's handwriting, I guess. And like the hijacker, Weber drank bourbon and chain smoke. Well, shit, that really brings down the circle of people. <laughs> uh, anyways, other circumstantial evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River, where his wife remembered him throwing a trash bag just upstream from Tina Bar. I mean, there we go, right? Um, one of the investigators said Weber does fit the physical description and does have the criminal background that I have always felt, he says, was associated with the case, but did not believe Weber was Cooper. The FBI eliminated Weber as an active suspect in July of 1998 when his fingerprints did not match any of those processed in the hijacked plane and no other evidence could be found to implicate him. Later, his DNA also failed to match the samples recovered from Cooper's tie. So that's pretty much probably it. So I, you know, I had forgotten him and I, this is my mistake. I forgot to mention the person that actually brought the parachutes. Now, Tina's the one that got the parachutes and brought them to Cooper. But remember, she had to walk outside of the aircraft and get the parachutes from somebody. Well, that person's name was actually Earl J. Cossey. And he was the one who packed the... He's actually the one that packed the four parachutes that were given to Cooper uh, of that, that day. Well, back in... Uh, well, on April 23rd, 2013... Um, he was actually found dead in his home in Washington, uh, Wood, Woodenville, Washington, a suburb of Seattle. His death was ruled a homicide uh, due to blunt trauma to the head, a blunt force trauma to the head. 
Uh, the perpetrator remains unknown, unfortunately. Well, that's pretty sad for that guy. But they are saying that some some people, um, you know, alleged possible links to the Cooper case, but authorities responded that they had no reason to believe that any such links existed. So Woodenville officials later announced that the burglary was more likely, the burglary was actually probably the motive of the crime. And now we come to basically the closing of, to me, one of the most fascinating stories that I've read. And I've read quite a bit of crime, these serial killers and stuff like that. I'm just saying, like, this one's just fascinating because I don't root for the serial killer to get away. That's one thing I don't do. Fuck that shit. But people like this, like a bank robber or something like that, you know what? Uh, the bank screwed us enough as it is, and so does the fucking government. So FDICs, you know, that's insured. So when they don't hurt anybody, he didn't hurt anyone. He was actually not even, he wasn't even rude. I mean, just really nice. Had a lot of respect for the girls, I guess, for the ladies on on the fight. You know, not just not an asshole. So I root, I root for that person, you know. I mean, fuck it, why not? So now we come, and, and that's why I find it just one of the most fascinating crimes. It wasn't anything uh, malicious, murder, or anything bad like that. Yeah, crime, robbery, whatever. But listen, they still got their money. Um, uh, Himmel, Heimelsbach, I, that's why I just said investigator, because anyways, this investigator, let, and let me check really quick. Let me check, let me check my sources. So he was actually the lead investigator of the FBI. Anyway, he famously called Cooper <laughs> a rotten, sleazy crook. Man, if that's not going to make somebody come in and turn themselves in with that horrible, uh, demeaning term and just so offensive, I don't know what would. Uh, but his bold and unusual crime inspired a cult following that was expressed in a song, film, and literature. I guess uh, there's novelty shops that have uh, sold and still sell T-shirts emblazoned with D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? Which sounds like a song to me, actually. Restaurants and bowling alleys in the Pacific Northwest, Northwest actually hold regular Cooper-themed promotions and sell tourist souvenirs. A Cooper Day, actually, celebration has been held at the Ariel General Store and Tavern each um, each November each November since 1974, with the exception of 2015, the year its owner, Don Elliott, passed away. Uh, characters and situations inspired by Cooper have appeared in the storylines of the television series, you know, like I just mentioned, which, again, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit, but again, news radio, man, that's that's where I remember, right? Uh, there's uh, The show Loki, I guess, which is pretty recent numbers, uh, quite a few. It was also a, a film, a 1981 film, The Pursuit of The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. I thought I was going to say Pursuant, my bad. <laughs> in 2004, another film without a paddle in a book titled uh, The Shuvius Prophecy based on the 4400 TV series, whatever the hell that is. Uh, let me see real quick. What's it have? Um, I hate saying, uh, uh, let's see. Mm, oh, gosh. It's making me... 4,400, oh, 2021, oh, CW, no wonder I didn't tune in, Ugh. okay, and yeah, the CBW is, I think, a comparison to Nickelodeon, but not that cool, <coughs> uh, 
also another thing, which I actually, it'd probably probably be disappointing, but it'd be kind of funny. I would only I wouldn't make a special trip for this, but if I happen to be around the area, I'd, I'd say why not? Let's go check it out. An annual convention known as CooperCon <laughs> is held every year in late November in Vancouver, Washington. The event, founded by Cooper researcher Eric Eulis, is in 2018, is a multi-day gathering of Cooper researchers and enthusiasts. CooperCon took the place of the annual DB Cooper Days, which ended when the owner of the aerial store pub died and the pub was forced to close. That's sad, though. But um, to this day, to this day is my last note on this story is the crime remains the only, okay, the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. How about that? How about that? Well, hour and 15 minutes, shit. I went over. I apologize. But I hope you guys found that fascinating. I certainly did. And it's, it's just crazy how somebody was able to do that and just and get away with that. Like, holy shit man you know i mean i know you're like well that was back in 1971 and that's true but you got to remember that we didn't have the stuff that we do now and if somebody and and i think i think it was just as i would say impressive for somebody to be able to get away with it back then as it would be today because today we're saying well there's no way nobody could get away with that and probably probably but they probably thought that in 1971 as well and listen, it happened. So D.B. Cooper, man, unreal. I got to try to find a way or what, what to call this. Um, I would really love to call it what I, what I said it, it, you know, at the beginning of one of the most famous unsolved crimes in, in, in American history. Maybe that's what I'll do. I mean, I think it's just, just crazy. But um, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to hold you guys up any longer. I am a little tired. I actually need to get this thing prepped and scheduled for tomorrow morning's release. So I'm on crunch time right now and have my dinner. I think I'm going to turn in early today because I am running, like I said, a little tired, a little exhausted, feeling a little off today. But I do want to thank you again for taking the time. I know, hey, listen, man, I always tell people, the most valuable thing that us as human beings have is time. That is the only, only asset of our lives that cannot be traded or valued is priceless. And it can't be traded for anything else, okay? Anything else can be with property, money, whatever. Time. When you give somebody your time or when somebody gives their time to you, remember that is something that can never be given back or taken back. And that's something that is the most important thing that we have in our lives. Okay. And we get easily pissed off and mad about other people getting on our property and 
and you know, taking our money, you're stealing our money, this and that, and rightfully so, don't get me wrong. But you know what? We just go ahead and waste time on people when we don't need to or we don't have to, but we just so freely go, oh yeah, sure, let's do that. And people maybe you don't like or whatever it is, and yet we throw the most valuable asset away sometimes without even thinking about it, yet we get mad about something that we can always regain, whether it's materialistic or it's money, whatever it may be, but we'll never be able to gain time back. And that's why I thank you guys for taking your time, your valuable time, to be here to listen to my podcast, listen to me, and I just want to say I truly appreciate any time you guys give your time to my content, whether it be on IG, whether it be on YouTube, on this podcast, whatever it may be, I truly appreciate it because I know time is the most valuable thing we ever have had or will ever have, at least until AI takes over. So just thank you guys again. Um, Take that valuable time if you can and uh, and check out my YouTube channel and subscribe to it and hit that bell if you could. Check out my IG. I post there a little more often. And, um, you know, always you can always DM me on there on Jose Mays underscore creator. You can comment on on my YouTube. If you guys want to email me, it's my Gmail. It's Juan and Joe. I think it's on my, I think it's on the, the whatchamacallit the um the podcast uh little summary thing but i'll put it on there i'll make sure it's on there but it's juan and joe comedy at gmail.com if you guys maybe you guys have some of my other things you might want to list uh you know uh want to know about a little bit more um maybe you guys have some ideas on some of the uh, some episodes i can do uh, you know whatever it may be maybe you want to hear a little bit more about something else i don't know let me know but again uh, don't forget to just subscribe also to this podcast and thank you once again i appreciate you guys had a wonderful friday and a great weekend and i will talk to you guys later peace that's a fucking wrap <laughs>